All right, we are here in week two of our series, Revival. And here's what we're saying in this series, that revival is not an event. Revival is a person. That revival happens every single time a person meets Jesus and encounters Jesus where we are and allows Jesus to raise to life the things that are dead inside of us, the things that we have allowed to die, the things that sin has killed in us. That every time we meet Jesus and we allow his resurrection life to bring to life the things inside of us that are dead, that is revival. That revival isn't an event and a revival is a person. And Jesus is the only one who can raise the dead to life. And here's what we're saying. Jesus physically raised some people to debt to life during his earthly ministry. And in those stories, we find some keys to how Jesus meets us and how Jesus raises to life the things that are dead in us. Now, let me start today's new content with, with another story of revival. A few years ago, I was while working at a different church, our church had invited an, an evangelist as a guest speaker for our weekend services. And, and like I talked about last week, this guy didn't just come for the weekend service. He came for the weekend service and then a Sunday night service, a Monday night service, and a Tuesday night service. And now the tricky part about being on a church staff sometimes is that you are required to attend things that sometimes you don't really want to attend. And these services that were going to be on Sunday night, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, they fell in that category, especially because as a youth pastor who held services on Sunday night, it meant canceling our youth services so that I could attend these revival services and I could tell all of our students to attend these revival services that I didn't particularly want to attend myself. So now the thing is, this is, this is a rather large church, a church that on the regular weekend services was over a, a thousand adults, um, which, which was awesome. And so uh, I, think, I think the evangelist had a bit of an idea of, you know, maybe half of those people will come back for the revival services at night. And we got to the Sunday night service and um, about 130 people showed up, which is way less than half. And you could kind of tell watching the evangelist and watching the speaker, you could kind of tell that he was a, a bit thrown off by, by the low crowd, by the low turnout. And, and, and I was sitting there watching, I'm like, man, he's, kinda, he's, he's, he's struggling with this. He's a little, little bit upset, but he preached his heart out and, and some people responded to the altar and, and people spent some time praying at the end. And I thought, you know, thought it was, thought it was all, all in all a pretty good thing. And so now this was kind of in the early days of social media. And I, I decided to find out if he was on social media, because again, I, I could tell that he was bothered by, by, the, by the low turnout. And so I wanted to see if he had said anything about it on Facebook. So I looked him up the next morning on Monday morning to see if he had said anything about the services. And on Facebook, I found him the next morning. And here's what he had said on Facebook. He said, oh my goodness, amazing turnout last night for revival services. 400 people showed up. Awesome move of God. And I was thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, buddy. Okay. I mean, I, I know so, there was God, God moved, people responded. So, so I'm not going to dock you any points there. But that was not an awesome turnout. And I was homeschooled, so I'm really, like, really good at counting. And, and, and I, I know it was about 130 people. And I know Jesus did some miracles in the New Testament. And I know there was times where Jesus multiplied food, but he never multiplied people times three. And so it, it was 130. It was not 400. And here's, here's what I quickly realized. What I quickly realized is this evangelist had something happen where he had an expectation and then he had the actual reality. And the expectation did not line up with the reality. And he had a choice of what do you do when expectations don't line up with reality. And what he chose to do as an evangelist to make it, you know, seem to people who were going to be, you know, scheduling with him in the future was to look like the expectation had been met even when it hadn't been met. 
Now, I want to let you know, young Pastor Chris judged the heck out of that guy for that, for that post. But at the, at the same time, I think he was doing, I think what he did and what, the way he responded is a representation of something that we all face. Because every single one of us knows that there's times in our lives where we have to reconcile the difference between expectation and life's reality. We, we, we all have times where, there, where we have expectations and then there's the reality of life, and we have to figure out how to reconcile and fill in the gap between what we expected to happen and what actually happened. Because we all have expectations, let's be honest, we all have expectations of how life should work. We all have some ideas of how our lives should play out. We all have some expectations of how God should act toward us, and we all have some expectations of how he should work on our behalf. And then, you know this, then there's actual life. And you have figured this out, hopefully. Hopefully I'm not breaking anybody's heart when I, when I tell you this. Life rarely lives up to our expectations. Life rarely lives up to our expectations. The promotion that you knew was yours goes to someone else. Your kids don't end up dating the type of people that you hope they'll date. You have a baby and you think, oh my goodness, it's going to be cuddles and snuggles and love and the way the babies smell and it's going to be awesome. And then you get them home and they cry and they scream and they poop on you. And, and the, the expectation rarely matches up with the reality. You go in for a routine checkup and they discover something and you're going, hey, doctor, no one told you to be Christopher Columbus and go exploring here, okay? Like no one needed a discovery in this moment. You get married and you find yourself fighting on the honeymoon. Life rarely lives up to expectations. Life rarely fits the narrative that we have created for ourselves. Like, and, and, like let's, let's be honest, 2020 has been one gigantic continuous example of life rarely matching up with the expectations that we have. Remember at the beginning of 2020, it was like, this is my year. This is going to be my decade. And if you ever, if you said at the beginning of this year that this is going to be your decade, you might just be a little bit right because this year is starting to feel like it's long enough to already be a decade. But I mean, we, we're all going, this is going to be the year I find my destiny and I'm going to fulfill my purpose and I'm going to chase my dreams and I'm going to chase my dreams and I'm going to chase my dreams. And you found out that you could only chase your dreams about as far as your door for a little bit. And, and remember at the beginning of 2020, there's all kinds of churches and all kinds of prophetic voices in, in, the, in the church who were saying, 2020, it's the year of 2020 vision. See what God has in store for you. See what God has for your future. And all of the people saying, see what God has for your future. None of them predicted this. This has been the continual illustration of expectations don't match up with life's reality. Life rarely lives up to our expectations. And so here's the question. What do you do when life doesn't fit your narrative? What do you do when life doesn't match up with your expectations? What do you do when life hands you the everyday version of 2020? What do you do when school and dates and marriage and kids and finances and doctor visits aren't what you wished and hoped for and believed for and prayed for? And here's the big one. What do you do when God doesn't fit your narrative that you expected and doesn't work the way that you hoped and believed and prayed that he would. Now, I, I, I think we have a couple of options. I think we have a couple options. The first option is to do what most of us do. When, when life isn't what we expected, we all have a tendency to blame God. When your life and when my life don't go the way we expect them to do, we blame God. And this is interesting. Even people who live like God doesn't exist when life throws them for a loop and when life doesn't live up to their expectations, when even though they live as if God doesn't exist, when life doesn't match up with what they expected, they blame God. It's interesting. So that's the first option. We can, we can, we can blame God, and that's the option that most people choose. 
But the other option actually comes to us today from the second story of Jesus raising someone to life. And the passage that we're going to look at today is similar to last week. It's three stories that all kind of happen, bang, 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 all happen really, really quickly. And they all serve to tell one story and to point in one direction. And they all serve to really tell one story. And the culmination of that one story gives us our better option of how to respond and what to believe when life and seemingly God don't meet our expectations. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to read fairly quickly this beginning story, so buckle up. Here we go. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 says this, When he, he being Jesus, when Jesus had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus then, it says, went with them. Now this word centurion, this this is a tip-off for all of us. Remember, this is happening in the nation of Israel, but this is a Roman officer. Why is a Roman officer in Israel? Because the nation of Israel was not a sovereign nation at this point. They were ruled by the Roman Empire And a centurion is a Roman officer over a hundred men, and their responsibility was to keep the peace in this conquered area. This is a foreigner. This is someone who doesn't belong. This is someone that everyone in Israel wished wasn't there. And this is someone, by every good regulation, by every temple law, by everything that, that, the, that the Jewish people were supposed, to, were, were supposed to believe in and follow, this is someone that Jesus shouldn't help. And so you got this group of people who comes to try to convince Jesus to help someone that Jesus shouldn't help. And then interestingly enough, here's what Jesus decides. Oh, I don't really care about the regulations and I don't really care about anyone's expectations. I care about helping a person. And so Jesus does what Jesus shouldn't do. And this is something that we should pay attention to. And we're going to talk about this fairly through, through the big part of the day. Jesus is not concerned with what we think he should or shouldn't do. Jesus is not concerned with meeting or living up to our expectations, which is actually good news. When you hear that, there's a a chance that you're like me when I first hear that and I go, I don't like that. I don't like that he is not concerned with meeting or living up to my expectations. But that is actually good news and we're going to find out why as we go through the rest of this story. When he was not far from the house, it says, going on in verse 6, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent some friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But, he says, say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, he goes on to explain, for I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, And he does it. And then we're told this. Jesus heard this. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowds following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant then in good health. Here's something amazing. Here's the, here's the truth that I want to focus on from this first story. Revival begins, revival begins with recognizing that Jesus' ability for you is tied to his authority over you. Revival begins with recognizing that Jesus' ability for you, his ability to heal you, his ability to perform the miracles that you're asking him to perform, his ability to bring to life the things that are dead in you, his ability for you is tied to his authority 
over you. Here's what this story shows us. This guy comes to Jesus and this man with authority, this man who gives commands and people jump to follow them, he understands authority and he understands how authority works. And he recognizes people of authority when he sees them. And he recognizes authority in Jesus. And this is big. He recognizes that Jesus' ability, his ability to heal the person that, that, the, that he's asking to be healed, he realizes that, that Jesus' ability to, to heal this person, his ability, is actually tied to his authority. And so this man says, look, Jesus, just, just say the word, and I believe it will be done because you are a man with authority. And then it tells us this, that Jesus was amazed. Now that word should actually make us sit up and, and pay attention because only two times in all of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life does it tell us that Jesus was amazed. And the only two times it tells us that are when, are when Jesus was amazed by the level of someone's faith. And so what was amazing to Jesus? Why was Jesus amazed by this? Because plenty of people come to Jesus asking to meet their needs, but they don't actually seem to trust him enough to follow his words and to follow his way. They don't trust that he's actually the authority. They come to him, like I said last week, like a spiritual sugar daddy looking for a handout, but they don't actually seem to want to follow what Jesus has to say. If Jesus will just snap his fingers, Jesus, they're like, cool, 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 cool. If it requires anything of me, I'm not so sure that I want to give you a place of authority in my life. And here's the thing that I want to make sure we understand today. I want to say this as lovingly as possible. When you come seeking something from God, but you won't trust and follow the ways of God, you will always find yourself disappointed with God. And, and as much as I love you, I love you enough to say this. You will be disappointed with God and you will actually be the one to blame. Because you, you were asking something from God, saying, God, I trust your ability, but also saying, God, but I don't want to give you a place of authority. And those two things are always tied and we cannot have one without the other. And so here's the thing I want to make sure we understand today. That, the, that, that there are some things in your life that are dying or dead and they will stay that way until you recognize Jesus as the authority and follow him and submit to him like he actually is the authority. It will only come to life when you submit to Jesus' authority and say, whatever you say, I'll do it. Wherever you point, I will go. Here's the thing. Your revival will begin when you recognize that Jesus' ability for you is tied to his authority over you and the authority that you have given him over your life. Now, that's, that's, that's the first story. Here's the second story, and this is the one that actually includes Jesus physically raising someone to life. Verse 11 tells us this. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. So this followed pretty quickly. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. Now, here's the crazy thing about this. This woman has lost everything. The fact that she's a widow means that at some point previously she had lost a husband, and she's going, okay, well, that's, that's, that's okay. I loved my husband, but I'll be okay because I have a son who will protect me, who will provide for me, who will take care of me, who will have my back. And now we're told that her only son has died, has been taken from her, is, is, is gone. And so she has lost everything. She's lost her, all of her sources of protection, of provision. She's lost everything. 
She's at her lowest moment, her most desperate moment in her life. And it's interesting to note this because as we mentioned last week, Jesus seems to make a habit of meeting people, of, of these coincidences where Jesus meets people at their lowest, most desperate moments. Again, if you're in the middle of a desperate moment, Jesus wants to meet you right there. He doesn't want to meet you on the mountaintop. He'll meet you on the mountaintop, but he's willing to meet you in the most desperate places of your life. So it says they're walking out and this, the, the, Jesus comes across this, this funeral procession. And then we're told this, a large crowd from the city was also with her. And when the Lord saw her, it says he had compassion on her. And then he said, don't weep. Which if, 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 if this was all Jesus did, this is incredibly insensitive. Incredibly insensitive. In fact, the two phrases back to back seem almost in, incompatible. That you, how can Jesus have compassion on this woman and say, don't weep. I mean, if, if you ever come across someone who's crying, the last thing that you would say without knowing them is, well, hey, don't cry. So Jesus, how can you have compassion and tell her, don't cry, don't weep? And the only reason that Jesus could say, don't weep, is because Jesus knew that wasn't all he was going to say. In verse 14, we're told this, then he came up and touched the open coffin, which by the way, is a weird thing to do. He touched the open coffin and the pallbearers stopped probably because they're going, hey, this rude dude who told, our, who told this old lady not to cry is now touching the coffin. I guess we should stop. The pallbearer stopped and he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, I'm telling you, sometimes my imagination goes weird, but this is, this is a grown man. We're, we're, we're told that this is a man, not a boy. This is a grown man, and after he is raised from the dead, Luke tells us that Jesus gave him to his mother, which kind of makes it sound like Jesus picked him up like a firefighter, you know, like cradled him in his arms, walked him over to his mommy, and was like, here you go, old lady, here's your son. And the mom was just picking him up like, I mean, I'm glad to be carrying him because he's alive, but it's kind of weird to hold him like this because he's a grown man. I, that's probably not how it happened, but that's the way that I read it, okay? Verse 16 then tells us this. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Here's, here's the point. Here's the point of this, of this story of Jesus raising the dead to life. When Jesus raises the dead in you, it's not only for you. When Jesus raises the dead in you, it is not only for you. Here's the question. Who did Jesus raise to life in this story? The man. Who else did Jesus act ultimately end up raising back to life? The man's mother. That in raising the man, Jesus also restored hope and life and freedom and provision and protection to the mother. And who else was ultimately raised by this story? Jesus raises the man, Jesus raises the mother, and then ultimately the intention of an entire town, an entire area, an entire region was drawn to Jesus and his miraculous power to heal and to restore and to bring the dead to life. By raising the man and raising the mom, the entire attention of the entire city was placed on Jesus. And so here's something that we just need to make sure we pay attention to. Whatever Jesus does for you, whenever Jesus raises something to life in you, it's not only for you. It is to be shared with everyone around you. That's what we do when Jesus raises the dead to life in us. We share the life with everyone around us because at the end of the day, our, when Jesus does something for us, we're supposed to point others to Jesus so that others can know the freedom and the peace that we have found through him.
Now, that's the end of the second story. The third story, like I said, this is three stories, and they all kind of lead to one point, one culmination in the third story. And here's what we're told, starting in verse 18. It says this, Then John's disciples told him about all these things. Now, this is, this is talking about John the Baptist, who at this moment in time was sitting in a prison. He was sitting in a prison because he had followed God and followed God's command to, to speak out against Herod when Herod stole his brother's wife and married. Like, I mean, it was kind of a messed up family scenario, messed up marriage scenario, just messed up all around. And John spoke out against it. John called it evil. John called it what it, what it was. He said, this is evil. This is wrong. You should not have done this. And because he did that, John found himself sitting in Herod's prison. John had followed God his entire life and followed him all the way to prison. This is the ultimate, I did what God expected of me. I thought there would be a reward, and instead I found myself in chains. Life, John's life, had not matched up to his expectations. And so we're told this, So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, this is a stunning reversal of opinion over a few chapters and most likely a few months by John. Here's the thing. No one, no one believed in Jesus more than John. John was the guy who had proclaimed to all of his followers before Jesus' baptism that Jesus was the Lamb of God who had been sent to take away the sins of the world. John had seen the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove and say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John had told his own disciples when they got jealous of Jesus baptizing people, John had told his own disciples, look, he must become greater and we must become less. No one had believed in Jesus like John had. And now... After seeing Jesus do ministry, after seeing what Jesus was doing, after seeing how Jesus was acting as, the, as, as John believed that he was the Messiah, John now has his doubts because Jesus isn't exactly doing things expected of the Messiah. And for all his belief in Jesus, it hadn't made John's life one bit better. See, this is something that's kind of hard to think about, to, but, but to the people of influence, the people of wealth, the people of prestige and power in Israel, Jesus was a constant disappointment. Jesus was a constant disappointment. See, the marginalized, the sick, the crowds, the people who had no power of their own, they loved Jesus. Jesus was, was healing them, providing food for them. Jesus was healing foreigners. Jesus was doing all kinds of stuff. Jesus was healing people who were connected to the invading army. I mean, like, like Jesus, this was the ultimate insult to people who expected that Jesus was going to be a military power who would kick out the Romans, who would return the nation of Israel and these other influential people back to the power that they were supposed to have. Jesus was a constant disappointment to them. Jesus did not live up to their expectations of what the Messiah would or should do or what the Messiah would or should look like. And because they're going, look, 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 look. Like the miracles are nice and all, Jesus, like we're impressed by all that. That's nice. Obviously you've got some power. But when are you going to start taking over? When are you going to take our already privileged selves and give us real power? When are you going to be the Messiah that we have believed in, that we've prayed for, that we've dreamed about, that we've hoped for? And oh, by the way, that we have been taught the Messiah would be like. In other words, when are you going to meet our expectations? When are you going to live up to our expectations? Jesus, when are you going to start acting the way we think you should act? And in the face of that, 
in the face of this message, in the face of this turnaround, in the message of this like about face and doubts by John, Jesus does not lash out. Jesus doesn't yell and scream and tell people that it's, it's inappropriate to have doubts and to, to, to change your beliefs. Here's how Jesus responds. At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And then here's the phrase that pays. Here's the phrase, that, here's the phrase that's the payoff of this entire chapter. Then Jesus said, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And other translations would say, blessed is he who does not turn away because of me. Jesus basically says, guys, I'm, I'm sorry that I haven't lived up to John's expectations. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I haven't broken John out of prison. I'm, I'm sorry that things haven't gone the way everyone hoped. I'm sorry that I haven't met everyone's expectations about what a Messiah should look like and what a, a Messiah is supposed to do. But if, if you're disappointed because I haven't met your expectations, I have some good news for you. Jesus would say, I didn't come to meet your expectations. I came to blow your mind. I didn't come to meet your expectations. I came to blow your mind. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Guys, I didn't come to lead a military revolt against a human empire. I came to lead a revolution of the human heart. I didn't come to save a nation. I came to save the whole world. I didn't come to address a temporary problem of the Roman empire. I came to solve the ultimate problem of your sin. So, blessed is the person who doesn't turn away from me because I didn't live up to their expectations. Because if they'll stick around and if they'll stay tuned into me, they'll see things that they never dreamed possible. Jesus did not come to live up to our expectations. Jesus came to blow them away. And so here's the question. So what do you do when life doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when you feel like God hasn't lived up to your expectations? You trust Jesus and you lay down your expectations. Let me say that again. You trust Jesus and you lay aside and you lay down and you release all of your expectations. That is different than saying lower your expectations. I think in, in, in reality, this is actually raising our expectations of what Jesus can do and what Jesus is allowed to do in our lives. We're not lowering our expectations and creating a low bar for Jesus to jump over. This is saying, Jesus... I expect that you can do just about anything that you want to do. You trust Jesus and you lay down your expectations. You trust down Jesus and you lay down your assumptions. You trust that Jesus was right and your expectations and your assumptions and your determinations about who he is and what he's supposed to do and how life is supposed to work. You simply make the decision that Jesus is right and you were wrong. That you were misinformed. That Jesus is right and you had missed something. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing today. If, if, if you've tuned, in, tuned out, tune, tune back in for this. Revival begins by dropping your expectations so that you can experience Jesus. Revival begins by dropping your expectations of how he should work and what he should do and what prayers he should answer and how he should work on your behalf. You simply drop all that so that you can experience him so that you can experience not your expectations of him, but so that you can experience him, him. And so 
as I say that, there's, there's two thoughts that I want to make sure I communicate today because I think these are some thoughts that all, all of us should pay attention to. These are thoughts that have kind of shaped a lot of my, my spiritual growth in the last couple of years. There's two thoughts, and here's, here's the two thoughts, and then I'll come back and talk about each one of them individually. That Jesus is bigger than you thought he is, and Jesus is better than you were taught he is. Jesus is bigger than you thought he is, and Jesus is better than you were taught he is. Let's talk about that first one. Jesus is bigger than you thought he is. See, here's some, here's some thoughts that we tend to have about Jesus. That Jesus is a healer. He's supposed to heal. Jesus is a teacher. He's supposed to teach and point the way. Jesus is a leader. He's supposed to set the example. He's a way maker. There's a, there's a song that's really popular right now called Waymaker. And so like a lot of people are thinking about, you know, he's the one who's supposed to make a way where there is no way. He's, Jesus is the friend. He's close and he allows a relationship with God. Jesus is the king. So he rules and he reigns. Jesus is the savior. He saves us from our sins. And let's be honest, Every single one of us, we have some aspect of Jesus and some aspect of our relationship with God that comes easily and that comes naturally to us where we understand it easily. Because I love to learn, it's easy for me to embrace Jesus as a teacher. And because I love learning about leadership, it's easy for me to understand Jesus as a leader. But Jesus isn't just a teacher. Jesus isn't just a leader. Jesus isn't any one of those things. He has all of them and more rolled into one at the exact same time. And here's why this is important. There are times when you have missed something that God was doing because the way that God was behaving or the way that Jesus was working in your life was an aspect of his character, an aspect of who he is that you don't understand or recognize quickly or easily or naturally in your life. I mean, maybe one of your favorite ways to think of God is as the way maker. You know, he's the one who makes a way when there is no way, but God is also the door closer. And just as much as God makes a way where there is no way when there's supposed to be a way, when you are not supposed to walk down a path, God will close the door. And if, that, and if you like to think of God as the way maker, having God shut a door in your face is difficult. But the door closed may be just, is, is just as much God's work as when he makes a way for you. Maybe it's that you love thinking of Jesus as your friend, but Jesus is also your Lord and he's also your king. And so sometimes your friend will give you a command. And that feels weird and that feels awkward. Maybe it's that you think about God as the God who meets your needs, but he's also the God who cares about the long game of your life. So he won't always give you what you want because he knows what you ultimately need. Here's the thing. Whatever you think of when you think of Jesus, and that's important, whatever you naturally and easily think of when you think about Jesus, he's bigger than that. Which means it's possible that you might have missed something along the way. And your revival your revival might just begin by admitting that and opening your eyes to see who he really is, the whole picture, not just who you hoped he would be, but who he really is, because Jesus is bigger than you thought he is. So he's bigger than you thought he is, but Jesus is also better than you were taught he is. See, if I can be honest, and this, this breaks my heart, some of you grew up in places and around people who taught you all the wrong things about Jesus. Some of you, you have no idea who Jesus really is because the people who taught you about Jesus showed you something entirely different. Let's just be honest. Some of you, you were taught how to use Jesus as a genie. You pray the right words, you figure out a formula for your prayer so that you can get the results and get what you want. Some of you, you were taught how to use Jesus as a weapon. 
to shut down everyone who disagreed with you or your religion and to use Jesus as part of your argument. Some of you have seen people abused and hurt while people use Jesus as a rationale for their behavior and their abuse. Some of you have seen racism and heard people in the church defend racism with verses from the Bible. Some of you have been taught or been shown that Jesus and science can't coexist because it doesn't seem like Christians and scientists exist together well. Some of you have been convinced that God hates women because of the way some churches talk about and treat women. And, and let me just say this. It, it, it breaks my heart what some of you have thought about Jesus because of what you were taught or what was modeled for you when it came to Jesus and when it came to the church, when it came to what a relationship with God could or should look like. It, it breaks my heart of what some of you were unintentionally or intentionally taught about Jesus. But if, but if, if that's you, let me just say this, that it's possible that your picture of Jesus looks a lot like human failure. It's possible that what you saw was not Jesus. It was all the bad coming out of humanity, and unfortunately, Jesus got, it got a big old Jesus label on it, but it looks nothing like Jesus. It's possible that your picture of Jesus looks a lot like human failure. And I just want to say, if you stopped believing in that God, good that God never existed in the first place. But at the same time, may I suggest, today may just be the day that you begin to take apart the shattered pieces of broken humanity that have clouded and confused the picture of Jesus. Because if you were taught that Jesus stands on the side of racism, Jesus is better than that. If you were taught that Jesus lived life to be a weapon to be used against people in an argument, Jesus is better than that. If you were taught that Jesus was okay with people being abused in his name, Jesus is better than that. If you were taught that Jesus was a genie to leverage and say the right words to get what you want, he's better than that. If you were taught that Jesus thought of women as second-class citizens, he's better than that. And if you were taught that Jesus and science can't coexist, he is better than that. And it's time to see him clearly, to see him clearly for who he really is. And that can begin today. As we put away our expectations and things that we've been taught about Jesus, as we set aside our expectations of how big he's supposed to be, and as we set aside our expectations of how good he's supposed to be, we simply understand that he's bigger than we thought he is, and he's better than we were taught he is. He's bigger and he's better. And your revival can begin because revival is a person and revival can be a reality for you today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much that you are good. Thank you that you are bigger than we think you are. God, thank you that in our limited thinking, in our limited ability to understand you, thank you that you're bigger than we think you are. And God, thank you that you're better than so many of us have been taught you are. God, for any of us who have, who have had a picture of you that is ultimately filled and covered over and painted over by a whole bunch of human failure and a, hu a whole bunch of human brokenness, God, I pray today that we would be willing to wipe that all away and to look at you fresh again. God, I pray that for some of us who are thinking about that right now, that we would take the bold step to wipe away the slate so that we can see you clearly. God, that we would trust you enough to take a step in your direction. 
And so God, I simply pray today that revival would begin for every single one of us. I pray that revival would begin and revival would become our reality as we look and understand that you are bigger than we thought you are. And so we might have missed something along the way about how you're working in our lives, that we might be missing something right now about how you're working in our lives, that while you may not be living up to our expectations, you want to blow them away. And God, I I pray that right now revival would begin as we wipe away the, the, the pictures of human failure that have nothing to do with who you are so that we can see you and experience you and experience every bit of goodness that you have for us. We love you, God. And I pray that you would do amazing things, that you would restore us to life as we see you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.